Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Hi, everyone. It is Mandy and Katie, and we're here. <laughs> Not six months later. Yeah. Only I'm so one proud of us. So. <laughs> no, not even. Uh, I think it's been a couple weeks, just a couple yeah. weeks. Okay. Yeah. And this we both had holidays to celebrate and family obligations. Yeah. So I think that's actually, we're doing pretty good. I'm going to pat yeah. us on the back a little bit. Yep. That's right. And now it's the new year, unless you're listening to this at a different time. And it may be any time of year. I always forget <laughs> that when I make those comments, like only if they're listening to it right when we publish it, which that's true. feel free to listen anytime you want. <laughs> I, I know people are actually just starting. So they're listening to things we you know, posted two years ago. I think some of our, actually some of my favorite mini-sodes that we did were super time-specific, but I think the lessons learned are often universal. Like they go past that particular day or week or whatever. Yeah. P.S. There have been some really hot news items that I've been wanting to dig into you. There was a profile, by the way, of... Um, DeSantis's wife that I kind of want to get into. I don't know. There's some good stuff. And I sent you that note about, um, the, the tweets that I was following. Mm -hmm. Is that even how you, what you say again? I I feel like I'm 8,000 years old and emerging from a cave, but, um, the, that were about the ways that white people and white women specifically, um, can, really lay like focus on and rely on any other element of their identity that's marginalized in some way to kind of let them off the hook for racism. And it can happen with talking about disability in particular, and that there are fewer consequences for talking about and being really transparent about disabilities that hmm. don't impact white women. I don't know if you saw the right. tweet that I sent yeah. you in a message, but yeah. I was just thinking yes. about our last episode when we were both like shocked that we have these twin diagnoses that we're <laughs> dealing with as adults that we didn't expect to have. And I, at some point I'll want us to talk about just that, even the ability to talk publicly about neurodivergence or disability or whatever it is that racism is wrapped up in that too. God, it just never ends and makes me so mad at myself (laughs) and just at society, you know, um, just always, we need to do a catch up too on, I know we did a mini soda while ago on the Harry and Megan and Oprah interview. And then Harry and (laughs) Megan have come out with their own, And there are some really disturbing white women like roles that have been played in that whole thing that are there's yuck. We should just keep a laundry list of all these, you know, moments in time that are popping up for us. But there's so many. We we could have this podcast like on the hour, every hour, like ding. Every time a white woman's shitty, an angel loses (laughs) her wings. That's what it could be. Uh, but, okay, today, I know yes, what we're okay, officially the intro. wanting to do. Yeah, we're supposed to be, 
getting everyone excited about one of my favorite interviews that we've done. I still cannot believe that we got to talk with Ruby Hammond. I'm so excited for people to listen to our conversation. She was incredible. Yeah. I loved it. And I know we say that we say this every time, but every <laughs> time we talk to someone, we're just like, that was amazing. And we're so amazed that people are willing to talk to us and share their time and I know, I know. <laughs> even <laughs> indulge some more shitty white women. We're trying, but we're still you know, shitty. So <laughs> That question does feel super indulgent, but part of me did mm-hmm. want to ask her, like, why would you talk to us and why ever give white women a chance ever? Because the more I learn, the more I'm like, just don't, just please don't yeah. ever talk to us. We cannot just walk away. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh my God. Save yourselves. <laughs> but she was absolutely wonderful and so yeah. insightful and, you know, really has such a, an important set of reminders and calls to everyone who's interested in this work. And I, I just was, um, really moved by our conversation and, and found it really inspiring. So I hope yeah. listeners do too. It was great. Yes. She's amazing. It is great. We will give you her, um, just a short bio on her. I know we've talked some about this, but this is just from her website. So Ruby Hamid is an author and academic with a journalism background. She's in the second half of her PhD in media studies, and she actually said she's almost, almost done, done when we were talking to her, mm-hmm. um, at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Ruby spent five years as a columnist for Fairfax Media's flagship feminist portal, Daily Life. Her columns, analysis, literary reviews, and essays have also featured in Australian publications, The Saturday Paper, Mangin, Crikey, and Eureka Street, and internationally in The Guardian, Prospect Magazine, The New York Times, and Gen Medium. Her best-selling debut book, White Tears, Brown Scars, that we had been talking about Mm -hmm, the past couple mm -hmm. of episodes, um, traces the role that white womanhood and feminism have played in the development of Western power structures. The nonfiction book was inspired by her viral 2018 essay, How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Color, which was published in Guardian Australia and became a global flashpoint for discussions of race and gender. And we talk about all of that. And it's great. All I can think about now is that there's a magazine called Crikey. Crikey. (laughs) I'm going to look it up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I will say, you know, something I appreciated, I think she's got a lot of um, provocative questions, a lot that might challenge listeners or, you know, push on comfort zones or push us into really thinking or, you know, questioning what we think about things. But I, I think that's where a lot of really important learning and growth and even like moments for solidarity and collective connection can happen. So I just really encourage everybody to hang in there, listen with an open mind and enjoy the conversation. Yeah. So here we go. Our interview with Ruby Hammond. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. We are very, very excited today that we finally get to catch up and have a discussion with Ruby Hamid, and she is here with us to discuss her book that we have been talking about on the podcast, White Tears, Brown Scars, How White Feminism Betrays Women of Color. So welcome, Ruby. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to be here. 
guys, I get so sweaty whenever we talk to authors. Like my palms get sweaty, <laughs> my armpits are sweaty. We talked to um, Stephanie Jones Rogers. I, oh, wow. I think yeah. you cite her work in your yeah. book. I know it's, it's like so beautiful. Work. I was just a wreck right before. I know, so so great. So I feel the same way. Like. Uh, I'm uh, just so, so grateful. Um, we were talking just a little bit before recording about how appreciative we are and it, just how beautifully written your book is. But something we just keep saying over and over again that we're, we're just so grateful for is the ways that you highlight colonialism and connect so many different places all over the world to these central problems. And, and that's something that a lot of what we've been reading or, or diving into especially both of us being from the United States tends to be very U.S. centric. So can you just talk to us a little bit about why that was so important for you and, and why looking at it through that lens or examining white womanness through that lens is so important? Yeah. Well, that was one of the things that I like straight off the bat knew that I wanted to do was to give it that, that, that global lens. And that's because colonialism, imperialism was and is a global project. So I, I didn't want to give the impression that it was exactly the same everywhere, but it, there were commonalities, foundational commonalities, and the status of uh, white women or white womenhood, so the, the conceptualization of it, the role that it was meant to play was pretty much the same with, you know, modifications depending on the context in which it was being deployed. And so especially with aiming the book at a global audience and, and including a, a US or North American audience is I wanted to give something that hadn't necessarily been explored before and that is that more of that, that, that global um, context. So to write it in such a, it was important to me to write it in such a way that Americans could and Canadians and, and you know anyone in the Americas really could identify with it, but still you know to make it relevant to you, but to still give information or perspectives or theorization that you hadn't necessarily thought of or come across because mm-hmm. uh, it, it it does tend um, to be like as you said um, focused on you know American books focused on America. So I wanted to write mm-hmm. something that could add to that, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a sense of in, in an additional sort of perspective as opposed to try to compete or try to replace it. Always meant to be a, a global perspective because that's how I've always seen colonialism and that's, you know, being born in the Middle East and growing up here, spending a lot of time travelling, living in the US and Canada for a few years. So I've always had that global I've always seen oh how this you know how our society is similar to in Canada in the US and but different and and just so that's just the lens I've always brought to it I thought it was so helpful to have that lens because I find when I'm talking about a lot of these issues with women who maybe even are more progressive but haven't gotten really deeply into the Mm. history they commonly still think of issues of racism, white supremacy, sexism as individual mm. actions and things that if people just stop believing a certain way or acting a certain way, that's going to solve the problem. Mm. And I think what your writing and all of the history that you brought in shows is that this is it, it is a very structural problem, which if you spend much time at all looking into it, you see immediately that it was built in and it was intentional and just changing individual attitudes 
does not fix that. And I think it's part of why we're still in the situation that we're in currently. And so I wonder how you think, um, how do we, if we can't just fix it by not being racist mm. ourselves or not having these, then, then what, what can we do as individuals to influence those socially structured systems? Wow. So it is like, it is both. Because at the end of the day, the mm-hmm. structures are kept alive by people, but by individuals mm-hmm. who have various levels of agency, however, and power and influence. Mm-hmm. So there are certain individuals who mm-hmm. are in a much bigger position to actually be able to impact on those those you know the, the institutions and the and the structures. So, like my my book was very much trying to diagnose a problem in a way that I don't think it had really been isolated as much before. Um, so I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not covering mm-hmm. all new issues, but I'm trying to bring a new uh, perspective to it and um, sort of asking more questions and answers really than providing answers. So I think we need to look at how, uh, I, I don't know, that's that like that's the that's the end of it. I I I, I think increasingly I don't want us to say so much that this is all about the system, it's all about the structure, it doesn't matter what individual mm. people do, because it does, right. because our individual yeah, yeah. psyche is influenced and influences mm-hmm. the system, right? Uh but what I'm seeing is just a lot of lip service to these things and people in mm-hmm. positions not really um sort of not really acting on what they profess and but even mm-hmm. just in things like west there's still a, in the west there's still very much a um a kind of when we do it it's okay when other people do it it's not and 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 that kind of to me it comes <laughs> yeah. back really comes down to how the west sees the rest of the world and that is a reflection mm-hmm. of you know what what's happening with race and racism within western societies is a reflection of what is the relationship the west has with the rest of the world by which i mean mm-hmm. you know you only have to look at the response in the west to you know russia's war in ukraine versus the response to israel and palestine right mm-hmm. you want to look at them there's mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. much similar there's commonalities there you're talking about a, a more powerful force incoming and and yet the, the outpouring of sympathy and empathy and, and money and funding into Ukraine versus the demonization of Palestinians. Mm. So mm. that, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. you know, we say we want a less racist society and mm. we support, you know, books like mine and we support progressivism and, and anti-racism. But yeah, the war in, and like uh, the war in, in Ukraine is very popular in the West in the sense of wanting to support and defend Ukraine, which in itself is fine. It's not mm-hmm. that's not what I'm sort of talking about. Yeah. But it's that what is it that makes you see it that so clearly, and that you need you need right. to be supporting the the, for, the 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 people that are being you know invaded versus in this context, yeah. if you're a vocal supporter of Palestine. You're you're demonized, and your career is yeah. com, you know can hang mm-hmm. in the balance, and and you know what role mm-hmm. does race, which in itself is a tool of empire, play? So, I guess that's what it kind of comes down to. Me, I I, I I'm wary that we are sort of taking empire too much out of race, right? 
It's not just mm-hmm. identity. It's not just our ethnic and racial background. It's the way in which racist structures and hierarchies were created and developed with a specific purpose of consolidating European colonial and imperial ventures, mm-hmm. which has now extended to beyond Europe's borders. Like, you know, and now it, the locus is now um, the US, right? It's the most powerful country mm-hmm. in the world. I hope that makes sense. So I guess in, in terms yeah. of individuals, mm-hmm. individuals, yes, we need to look yeah. at how we, we are interacting with other people. We need to look at the organisations we're involved in and really look at the work they're doing and whether we can support it. But then we also need to look at the bigger picture and look at how, what what pressure can we put on our politicians of like, well, if you're supporting a country like Ukraine for these reasons, which are, you know, legitimate, mm-hmm. may well be legitimate, why wouldn't you support other place, uh, a country like, you know, and I, the reason I, you know, I'm not picking on Israel and Palestine, but I'm, I'm using that because Western foreign yeah. policy. It's a contemporary Well, yeah, and Western foreign policy is very instrumental in what's happening there, right? It's not, it's not mm-hmm. a conflict that is divorced from any Western country, especially the US, mm-hmm. but also Australia, also the UK. That, that is why I'm looking at the, you know, these two contemporary cases and just the, the very, very – and I just saw a headline. I haven't read it yet, but a headline came through my email notifications that, that um, U.S. Congress is apparently appeal, uh, approving another $44 billion in aid to the Ukraine, right? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. so, that, again, that's – the U.S. is footing the bill. You guys are footing the bill. You're, you're as individuals, your um, finances are – suffering right you're taking a blow and so are we everything's gone up and we're all worried about gas and we're all worried about natural gas and petrol and and it's like well what what could our politicians really be doing to sort of find a resolution to that conflict are they doing everything they can is there a benefit to the west from that war in ukraine like these are the questions that we really should be asking what does what 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 does the west get out of it because I'm sorry, like you know, call me cynical, but I I don't I don't accept <laughs> that they're willing to cough up another forty four billion dollars just because they sympathise with the people of Ukraine. Out of the goodness yeah, of her. because if that was, <laughs> the, if that was the case, they'd be throwing money at everywhere, but they're not. Yeah, they're yeah. not throwing mm-hmm. money at every, yeah. every mm-hmm. yeah, at yeah. all the suffering around the world that they could be helping. So why? What? And and these are the things that perpetuate, right? So this this is what I'm talking about: how our personal yeah, choices and our personal conscious, individual consciousness affects and is influenced by the bigger structure. Well, that mm-hmm. I think. Well, there's a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. One, we can answer this one later. You know, you mentioned you hate to be cynical, yeah. and I am curious if on you know on most days do you feel more cynical or more hopeful? But I I think this conversation about individual agency and how it works with those structures mm-hmm. and systems that something that gave me hope actually from your book was just this uh, just again, such clarity around the need to be intersectional and that you can't have your cake and eat it too. This one little part can't be better because it makes you feel less Mm. bad, but everything else gets to stay the same. You know, it's, it's understanding like, you know, if you care about, um, misogyny, then, then you also need to care about racism and you also need to care about ableism and you also need to care about indigenous sovereignty because they're all actually connected together. And you're going to have to have a real tough conversation with yourself about capitalism. Like there's, you start to pull it apart and you realize why it's easier to stay at like the thinner mm. lip service levels because like then nothing really has to change. You know, you can keep this going. You and know? look, a big, 
wake up call that I've had recently is also that there are people in progressive within the progressive movement, progressive organizations whose livelihood depends on there not being a solution to this. And that's something we also have to consider. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, because what I see. <laughs> okay, then maybe yeah. we are ourselves in a car. I don't know. No, it's true, though. <laughs> if you're asking me what we can do, we have to also, we have yeah. to factor that in. We, well, we, we seriously have to consider that. I don't know what the solution to that is, but I think we really need to look at the organizations mm. that we do support. And I'm not definitely not picking on anyone and, and individuals, the spokespeople that we support. And the way I see it, like books like mine exist. Or should exist so that we don't need books like mine anymore. Like I want my book to become. <laughs> you want to be obsolete. Yeah. Like I, you know, I don't right. want as a person because right. I think there's other things I can do and write about. <laughs> right. But books, it's true. Right. Like that, and that's how I see it. But yeah. I don't think everyone does necessarily see that because I see, I do see mm. people within our movements acting in such a way that actually does not benefit the, all of us. Um, like this is a hard thing to say because eh, it's hard because it's yeah. disappointing but also hard because I I can't use yeah. examples for obvious reasons like um <laughs> you know so but it's something that mm. if we need to open our eyes to and these are parts of the reasons why and I don't want to say it's all on us it's all our fault as progressives we're not we're supporting the wrong progressives or we're doing things wrong but it's that balance of you know, there's a quote by Carl Jung, the, the, the psychoanalyst, who said, he said, as mm-hmm. goes the individual, so goes the nation. As goes the nation, so goes the individual, mm-hmm. right? It's that interplay. And we can't yeah. change ourselves without a profound change in our system and our whole social system and political and economic system. But at the yeah. same time, we can't change that and expect not to have to undergo <laughs> profound reconstruction personally, all of us. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Re- reconstruction and reparation. Uh, oh, absolutely. Like, well, that's, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, th- th- I think that's something that a lot of Westerners really have a hard time with too. I think especially white people, they're like, let's skip that part. Let's jump to where we're all nice, you know, like everybody's happier. And it, it that the phase where you try to make a wrong right, especially a wrong that's so rooted in, in such deep history, that that I think that process can feel like overwhelming or, you know, and your point about the systems and individuals. I think I tend to be the more hopeful of the two and many tends to be the more cynical <laughs> of the two. Not every time, but most of the times. And I, so I think like, okay, the theory of change I operate on as someone who's been working in education is that education and learning more will help people not want to be invested mm. in these systems. That I think is maybe a naive theory of change. There are days where I wonder if that's really what actually happens. I think for some people Mm. it does, of course, but for some people it doesn't, you know, you could have white women read your book and just be totally unmoved and unchanged, you know, or like ramped up, you know, like, oh good. Now I have like even more. I was going to say, it could be a tool. And I was well aware of writing that. I was thinking this can actually be something because Power is very good at doing that. Whatever kind of power there exists in a social mm. family system, a social system, a political nation at the national level, power is very good at being able to look at something that is a challenge to it and find a way mm. and find, well, that's what my book's about. It's how white supremacy was did that with feminism. It's like, okay, this could be a challenge to me, so I'm going to find a way to 
work, make it work for me while pretending that it's actually still working again to get, it's so, it's deceptive, but that's, that, mm-hmm, that is how mm-hmm. power reproduces itself. And, and that's something we need to be, uh, you know, constantly on the lookout for and, and, and aware of. And I knew even as I was writing it, I'm like, this could very easily end up doing the opposite of what my intention is, but and I've actually said to friends sometimes, I'm like, sometimes I feel guilty because there's a part of me that believes the worst, well, not the worst, but one of our downfalls has been the written word. Because we can put things on paper yeah, right. and before paper parchment right. and print, yes. it gets solidified, right? Yes. But it's still yeah. so open for interpretation. You can be misunderstood in your own time. I could say something to you right now that I think is perfectly right. clear and A, you could mm-hmm. genuinely misinterpret it, like as in genuinely misunderstand what I'm saying and think it's something else, but then other people can purposefully misrepresent it. And that's in our own time. And I've seen mm-hmm. it happen to me and I've seen it happen to others in my own time. So, and yet we're here looking at texts from like a thousand years ago and saying this is exactly what this means and if you don't do this mm-hmm. exactly as mm-hmm. I say, I'm going to kill you or I'm going to invade you or I'm better than you. And yeah. you, so... There's, there is a sense of guilt. So I tried to write it as clearly as I could. But again, <laughs> because we are all individuals and we're going to look at something and we have our different vantage points, mm. we're never going to interpret something exactly the same as others or exactly in the way that the person who wrote it probably intended. Like, so um, humbleness on all our parts is probably required, humility rather than like, I have the way. And if you're not with me, um, you're wrong and, and you know, mm-hmm. like they'll cast you out sort of. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, speaking of intentions, I think I wondered that about, you talk about at the beginning of the book, this kind of came out of your Guardian mm-hmm. article that you had written initially. When And I wondered when you sat down and wrote that article, was there any part of this that you foresaw at that no. time that you thought it could turn into this whole book, all of what you're doing now. 100% no. No idea. I yeah. I wrote that, as I say in the book, trying to piece together personal experiences. And then, you know, when you're, when you're working through something, you start to see it in other places. And, you know, so I'd see a tweet. And I'm like, that's quite similar to what I'm trying to. And, I, you know, I quote some of these tweets in my book. And then I saw an article about um you know, how white women's distress, you know, the, the article by Lavi Jayi who um, talks about, you know, mm-hmm. the weaponization mm-hmm. of white women's tears. And then you find that people have been talking about this for years, right? It had just never gained traction the way it did with my article. So I hadn't been exposed to them, right, until I started to work through it and my eyes were open and I was trying to make sense of them. So how is it, like, how is it, like, this white colleague did this to me and but me, mm-hmm by bringing it up and asking for an explanation and asking, you know, for them to fix the issue, I'm basically being told you either have to suck it up or leave. So I had to leave my job, right? Why am I the person who actually has to pay a price? Um, because somebody mm-hmm. decided to screw me over. And then why mm-hmm. is it when I try to talk about other to other colleagues, they either take her side or they start talking about their own emotions and their own feelings, like what is happening and mm. and why is it so easy to, to cast me as like this bad guy just because something happened to me and I don't want to be quiet mm. about it. Um, so that's that was the process of that. And then when that happens, it starts up, you know, 
it happens again and again and you're like wait a minute like this can't be a coincidence every like if I'm talking to you know <laughs> you know my my POC friends and colleagues are reacting to it this way my white colleagues you know nine out of ten yeah. eight out of ten are reacting to it in this way yeah this can't just be about me or this particular issue. There's a wider societal thing going on here. Mm. And, you know, like this, even that concept of white women's tears was already being discussed and written about, but it just wasn't exploded into the mainstream like that. And and I think in most of the ways it was, like I do discuss it differently in my work. Um, it's, in most ways it's discussed in the ways in which white women may um, get emotional about racism so that they either get to put themselves in a position where I'm one of the good guys or they get to deflect mm-hmm. the conversation so that we're not talking about race anymore or just that that mm-hmm. white women's uh, distress is uh, inherently more valuable. So whether she intends it or not, she's going to get people on side. So I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about it more in the terms of a, a tactic, a strategy that white women are aware of the valued place of white women and white women's emotions in society and are able to tap into it at pivotal moments. And then as soon as that moment is passed, they get to put themselves back into the role of the, you know, the oppressed woman. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to to do with it. So again, you see how it's an interplay of the personal and the and the structural. Mm-hmm, yeah. You can't. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm, and and yeah. that is what I was trying to get at with the with the article. And uh, it was just an article to me. And look, at that point, uh, because I was coming off the back of those negative experiences I had and which didn't go my way at all in the Australian landscape. And so I had just enrolled in a PhD and I thought, well, I'm just going to, I just want to get out of the media. I want to get out of this sort of popular sort of writing. It's it's not, go, you know, I'm giving it everything I have and people are taking my work and making it their own and not giving me proper credit and my you know, my career just just stagnated. And then mm-hmm. I wrote at that and that was like one of the last articles that I ever thought I would write, you know, and and I mm-hmm. had a, wow. an editor and it was at the Australian Guardian who was a white woman. So, you know, you know real props to her. She, at that, she's, that, there's a different opinion editor now, but she was, she, you know, Gabrielle Jackson, she she definitely could see the issues and wanted, wanted them discussed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so she was, you know, mm-hmm emailing me saying do you have any ideas I'd love to publish you more and so that one was one and I knew that it was going to be a tough one to get across the line because the concept of white women's tears as a everyday everyday term just it wasn't in the what it is now right it just wasn't discussed in that way like mm-hmm. on Etsy little shot glasses you know, with it printed like, on the- <laughs> it's just a thing now people know when you say it right so and I wasn't yeah. even thinking of yeah. necessarily that term what you know white women's tears when I, I wrote it I was really thinking of this dynamic there's this dynamic between white women and women of color that white women know they can mm-hmm. they implicitly know that they can use our race against us in such a way that it looks like mm-hmm. they're not but they are and then yeah. they get to play, but we're all women mm-hmm. and why are you attacking me as a woman, that sort of a thing. And that to me was the crux mm-hmm. of what I was trying to say in that article. But other people had framed it as white women's tears, so I referenced them, right, because that was related to what I was mm-hmm. saying. But I was also saying I want to add to that and take this in a different direction. Um, and I just wasn't, I wasn't, first of all, I just wasn't expecting it to get beyond Australia <laughs> for a start, right, um, and I just thought, it doesn't matter. I can actually say things that are a little bit more out there because I'm going to stop writing for the media soon anyway. Um, <laughs> so, and I just felt this is a thing with me. When I think, when I see something that needs to be discussed and it's not being discussed sufficiently, mm. and it definitely wasn't being discussed at all in Australia. It wasn't being discussed sufficiently anywhere mm. because it was being suppressed. 
But in Australia, it wasn't being discussed at all. And I was writing for an Australian audience, mm-hmm. right? So I um, mm-hmm. I was like, no, this has to be has to be put out there and you know so I I did put it out there and then it was because it was the Guardian and so it has you know the US and it has the UK sites as well they're all independently run but so they saw it and they the editors and those two sort of the officers thought okay we need to publish this on on our website as well the front page as well and so it was when women or all people of color but especially women of color especially black women you know, black women, Indigenous women, like Native American women and Latina women were pivotal in getting mm-hmm. that article spread and validated and mm-hmm. myself supported um, because it it really hit exactly mm-hmm. on that experience. And I think a lot of it was also there was a shock that it was in The Guardian, right, like because it, it is such a, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a progressive, you know, considered a progressive paper, but it is white-owned and white, right? So it's very, it is very white in that sense. And so, and I still remember mm-hmm. one of the tweets, like Clakeisha Kent is an author. She's got a book coming out soon too. But um, I never thought I'd see White Woman's Tears in a, a publication as weighty, it's a bit funny, weighty, um, as in like weighty white, <laughs> basically as The Guardian. But mm. lo and behold, here it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, you know, and then she linked to my mm-hmm. article. And that was, you know, that was hugely garnered a lot of support. And at a time I needed it because I was getting hammered. All the, yeah. all the sort of the white conservatives and racists in the UK had by that point oh, had discovered terrible. the article and were hammering me and I was feeling very much isolated mm-hmm. and alone. And then all of a sudden mm. this outpouring of support from black and Indigenous and Latina women started coming in and that kind of turned it around for me and kind of gave me the strength. Wow. But in terms, sorry, it's a long way of saying um, no, it's powerful. Because it, it hit such a nerve with, you know, women of colour of all backgrounds so readily identified with it, it was they wrote to me and asked me to keep it going. And they're like, are you going to write a book now? And I'm mm-hmm. like, no intention. I was, I just started a PhD, right? I was like, no, I'm getting out of this. I'm, <laughs> oh, this I'm retiring time. from Come this on. sort of writing. I'm going into <laughs> academia now. Uh, but they're like. <laughs> Only 20 people read an article. <laughs> um, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, what was it, you know, and a couple of them said something like, but you kind of, you kind of have a responsibility in a way because you've exploded this thing. You can now you can now talk about it and people will listen to you because you've written this article. You're in a position that a lot of us are not in. And and that's true. They, they didn't say it in a, like they said it in a very open, matter of fact way and in a in an almost like a request, like they're requesting keep speaking for yeah. us as well as yourself. But, you know, so I was like mm-hmm. they're absolutely right. It, this this now does, act, the success of this article, the virality of it now does does actually give me a responsibility because I did achieve notoriety very quickly through it. I did put it on the conversation in terms of you can't ignore this anymore. You can pretend to, you could, you could mm-hmm. pretend to ignore it before, but you can't now because it's, it's just gone too big. So mm-hmm. then I was like, I think they're right. I think I do have to act on that responsibility and, and write a book. But then I was like, but how? Like, is there a book here? You know, I, at that time, I didn't know how I would do it. I didn't know how I would. Oh my yeah. gosh! I mean, of course, like I am sure there was a ton that didn't. Absolutely. Make it Once in I book, started, you know, yeah. your question is there a book? Once, I'm sure there was like yeah, yeah, volumes. Know. You well, know, because I was like, okay, I'm, I'm exploring one very specific dynamic between white women and non-white women that plays out, and it plays out at work, it plays out among friends, it plays out online, and I mm-hmm. thought I got to the kernel mm-hmm. of it in the article, 
then I thought, okay, how do I expand on it in a book? So I went back to the article and, you know, I was kind of like, read this as if you're, you didn't write it. What is the what? And you had to write a report on it, you know? Um, <laughs> and then I thought the things that kept coming up was women of colour are positioned as this. We're taken to be aggressive. We're assumed to be that. I think, okay, so this is a book about how mm. women of colour are represented and perceived and why. Yeah, so that's when I took it. Well, then, okay. Yeah. Then I was like, okay, well, you can't talk about all women of colour as just one group. You know, I'm mean, going to use that term sometimes when I'm talking about something that affects all women of colour in various ways to different degrees. Uh, but our experiences, whether we're Arab, whether we're black, whether we're Indigenous, uh, there's going to be some similarities, but there's going to be differences, right? So, you know, in the US it's Indigenous women and black women are copped the brunt of it as the dispossessed and as the enslaved. Mm. And then where do the rest mm. of us fit into so I wanted to talk about there are commonalities and there are ways in which we were archetyped, you know, whether we are black and archetyped as, as aggressive or, you know, East Asian and, are, and archetyped as sexually permissive and dainty. And, and if we step outside of these archetypes, then we're demonised. But if we stay inside the archetypes, we're dehumanised and belittled in that way of, well, that's all you're good for, right? So, um, you know, once I saw that, then I was like, okay, there is so much here um, to talk about the differences but also how they are related and where it all springs from, right? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I thought, well, we also will ne- then need to look at how white women came to be seen the way they are and hold the position that they hold and how because there's race and, you know, we're as women and all all genders, but I'm talking about women specifically in the book, as women we're a product, not I don't want to say product, but the way we move in the world is affected and shaped both by our race and our gender and other things, but let's just focus on these two. Mm -hmm. Um, And that goes for white women as well as non-white women. You can't say white, and this is how feminism in the West has traditionally and for the Mm -hmm. most part still functions as our oppression mm-hmm. is all just a function of our gender. So because they're only looking at the oppression side of it, they're not they're purposefully ignoring or they're give or they're not looking at or they're blind or however you want to put it. They they're they're not perceiving accurately the way in which their not just their personhood, but their womanhood is shaped by their race as much as by their gender. Yeah. Well, I, Mandy, I feel <laughs> like I can read your mind because just in our previous <laughs> episode, Mandy was like, Oh, we were talking about some of the archetypes and how helpful that was in the history. Mm. And she's like, well, you heard what just happened with this latest archetype that the Lovejoy trap (laughs) got pulled and written about. And so then (laughs) that's what we ended up talking about, like how predictable in some ways. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier to know that you're writing this and it's going to go out into the world and people are going to use things and, you know, people will take, work that isn't theirs and and it's that that also being a part of white womanhood too mm. and i i don't want to put you on no, the spot okay. but just know we were super pissed when we read about this story <laughs> yeah. and you know just how incredibly frustrated that it just has to be well let me put it in a question and then mm-hmm. you can talk about that if you want specifically but i'm wondering in the years and months since the article came out since the book came out i'm I'm guessing it's kind of like when you have a child and like, you know, your child, but you constantly are learning things about yourself through your child as they move in the world. Like it's not a static thing. So I'm wondering, like, as this thing you gave birth to and put out in the world, like what, 
what aha moments have you had either like additional learning or insights that has moved you or excited you and the more hopeful side? And then what have you learned from this going out in the world that maybe has been like heavier or discouraging or, you know, like, yeah, no, good question. Like the, in terms of the first half of that equation, like the, the, I guess the good side that is just seeing the impact that it's had on people and, and women in particular, you know, writing to me and telling me, um, A, whether they're, you know, white women and, and sort of admitting to ways in which they haven't um, acknowledged the way in which they move as white people as well as women in the world. Um, and then, you know, especially women of colour writing it and saying how it's given them that sort of framework to understand so many of their experiences and others are to say to have their experiences validated and to feel seen in a way that they hadn't felt seen before because there was this major aspect of their experience in the world that wasn't being acknowledged enough in society. So, and look, you know, I don't want to just harp on the negatives because there are people that have referenced the work and use the work in excellent ways that are sort of true to how I think I, I wrote it. In terms of the disheartening side, so you know, that, that thing with the Lovejoy trap, was, was look, it was disappointing because, like I said, there are, are a number of terms that I came up with in there um, that I wanted people to use. So I wanted to, mm-hmm. so when I first mm-hmm. sort of came across that article, I was, I was pleased. I was like, oh, great, someone's talking about this part of my book that isn't talked about much. And then as I read it, I was like, hmm, it's a bit strange. Like she mentions, so this is how we really have to be careful how to, to see between the lines in how language is used, right, because... Mm-hmm. She didn't say Ruby Hammond came up with this term. She said the term appears in Ruby Hammond's book. How did it get there? Who <laughs> like, did it just, <laughs> yeah. did it, you know? The letters yeah, fell in, like, it Ruby. Just, they just so happened to fall in order. Say, and it refers to this and that. And it's kind of like she describes it as an entity that exists independently of my book, right, as opposed to something mm-hmm. I coined. Mm-hmm. And now in a way that's partly on me because I gave her the term the Lovejoy trap because I wanted it. I wanted people to readily understand, oh, everyone knows Helen Lovejoy, or if they don't know, I could easily explain her. You know, the, the Simpsons, mm-hmm. won't someone think of the children? Yeah. But that, 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 <laughs> yeah. that's just the surface level of what I was saying. I was, I'm, I'm looking, I'm, I'm saying right. don't just look at her words. Don't just look at as in like she's deflecting by talking about the children. Look at what possibilities that can come out of that. It's not just a, she uses children, but it's not just about children. You can use that to describe anything, right? It's, and I, and I, mm-hmm. why, again, in the same way that I used white women's tears differently to the way that it had the mm-hmm. same, but extended it, I should say. So you, I described it and then extended it in the whole different direction as well. That's what I wanted to do with this idea of the love joy trap. Like it's not just about children, it's about the way in which, um, mm-hmm be having a discussion whether you know in the context that I discussed it first in the book was Indigenous rights in Australia and we celebrate Australia Day on the very day that the first fleet of convicts came in right so the very day that Australia was invaded mm-hmm. Indigenous like the continent that we now call Australia was invaded is the day that we say Australia was formed so it's it's really like it's you know what I mean mm-hmm. it's like let's put the keep the foot on the neck type thing what what happens a lot is in the discussions of that is, uh, and we're seeing it on live TV, we're seeing it online, 
is anyone who's non-Indigenous who was supporting uh, Indigenous people who boycott and protest on Australia Day, which they call Invasion Day, gets Mm -hmm. it turned back on them and saying, well, what are you doing actually? Do you care about the remote communities? Do you care about how many women and children are being raped by men in those communities? So, A, it turns it back on us by saying, actually, you're not moral enough to even have an, you know, so we're not talking about Australia Day anymore. We're, we're, as in non-Indigenous supporters, have been made out to be lacking in morals because we're not doing what we should be doing. And C, it it once Mm -hmm. again portrays Indigenous communities in a negative light by suggesting or more than suggesting, really indicating that whatever disadvantage they, they still have is their own fault, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, and again, that's something I was pieced together because it happened, you know, I, I, I still had a Facebook page then and I just shared, and I didn't even write anything, right? I didn't share my opinion. I just wrote, I just shared, a, it was on uh, Invasion Day a few years ago and I just shared a, a picture. It was a really great picture of a massive, like, Aboriginal uh, flag uh, at a protest set against this, you know, blue sky, and I just sort of shed it. And then someone, you know, some mm-hmm. rando came in and just kind of said, <laughs> well, what have you done for them? Would do you care? Like, why? You're just using, um, you know, you're, what did you say? Calm your Arab ass down. You know, I just said, I hadn't actually said anything. I literally <laughs> just shared a picture. Calm it down. And you're just using, you're using, you know, Aboriginal people for your own agenda, rah, rah, rah. So see how he switched it on me and then Mm -hmm. said if you really cared you would be helping the women and children in those communities that to me that is the essence of what Mm -hmm. the lovejoy trap is it's not just about saying pretending Mm -hmm. to care about children it could be about anything it's what most often used Mm -hmm. with children and with women but it's in a way of ensuring that you're you're no longer even discussing the issue at hand and you're now defending Mm -hmm. yourself somehow and with this person who's very clearly doesn't care about anyone and is just having a, you know, a laugh or purposefully <laughs> deflecting. Um, so that's what I was getting at. And so what the article did was not discuss that at all. It actually didn't quote me. It didn't actually quote what I said the Lovejoy trap is and it just kind of said this is what it is and it's about conservatives, it's about fascists, and I'm just like, no, this is about all white people and what you're doing it now. Like, to me, what really upset me is that article is that it's, it just became another way that white liberalism can build this aura of goodness around itself. Like, we are not the same mm-hmm. as, and I'm not trying to say that mm-hmm. fascists and liberals is the same. It's not that at all. But that's not what I was doing with that article. I didn't want it to be used as yeah. just another mm-hmm. war between liberals and fascists and or liberals and conservatives. And that's what that article turned it into. And look, she's within her rights to say, I want to explore this dynamic and it's similar to what Helen Lovejoy is, so I'm going to call it the Lovejoy whatever. But she used, she used trap, which is my word, which now in a way kind, mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't really because my books still exist, but within her article, within her space mm-hmm. and her readership and her world, it overwrites everything I said because she doesn't quote me once. She just mentioned me as a kind of really, mm-hmm. she really, you know, if I'm being cynical, which I am right now, it would be like I was men- I was really <laughs> mentioned only to protect against accusations of plagiarism. And I saw it when people did try to sort of mm-hmm. comment on online and, and, and leave comments to the magazine and to her and say, it's just like, well, we, we quoted or we referenced her. So as if just mentioning, it's like mentioning mm-hmm. without actually crediting is not really 
proper citation. Mm-hmm. But not only that, you've actually mm-hmm. used it in a very or in a different way to how I developed it. And I put a lot of thought into that. And I gave it that name because I wanted it to be easy to go, oh, yeah, I know what she's saying. Mm-hmm. So she, there was any number of things that, that she could have called her dynamic, but she called it that. So she's associated, attaches it to my work, attaches it to my book, but then completely overwrites what I've actually said about it. So it's called, it's turning it into something else. Mm-hmm. And I maybe, you know, I kind of was like, wait a minute. And that's because I see how that happens. You know, it's happened to terms like identity politics. It's mm-hmm. happened to terms mm-hmm. like intersectionality yeah. where they become something that is actually quite far removed from what the person who developed them said it was. And it's just like, I'm just like, I see it happening. As I said, we discussed at the start of the, this interview, like is is discussion is that you see how something that you thought you made so clear, someone can just have a completely Mm -hmm. different interpretation or decide. And this is what it felt like from where I am. It felt like she thinks, or she's writing in such a way that is implying that she knows, understands this better than I do. Was I'm the one who came up with it? It's kind of like okay now. Thank, thank you for coming up with this particular iteration of the Helen Lovejoy meme. I'll take it from here. You know, that's what it felt like, like a little pat yeah. on the head, and mm-hmm. it is insulting. And it's just like even after I'd sort of contacted the magazine, I didn't contact her, but the magazine, and the most that they did was just <laughs> this is like literally I said this book, this term didn't just appear in my book. I came up with it and I and I intended it to mean something quite different to how it's been used in this article. And then all they would give me is they replied to my comment and said, um, they didn't even mention me by name, they didn't apologise, they just said, upon reading your comments and your concerns, <laughs> we've decided to change it from the passive voice to the active. So they changed it from the term appears in Ruby's book to Ruby Hammond calls it the Lovejoy Trap. But then she still gives it a definition that isn't my definition. Now I'm rambling about this. Like, but, you know, like this is the kind of thing that happens to, well, it happens to everyone at some point, right? We're all going to, it doesn't, this is something that doesn't, you know, that can transcend race and, and it can happen to all women and, and men too, but men less likely. But when an, you know, a woman of color and a white woman does it to you, still, there's still so little recourse. Like, I mean, when you think about it, like it's mind blowing. She did it in a, from a book that is about how white women do this to to women of color. She did it, and even <laughs> after I pointed it yeah. out, I'm like, "Thank you, like for using my term, but that's not what it means." And if you're going to use it, then mm-hmm. you're like, you need to use it in the way I said it. Otherwise, if you want to, if you want to discuss mm-hmm. a different dynamic, then give it a different name. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they wouldn't. And, in fact, they just kept sharing. Obviously, I think I probably drove more traffic to their website than they've ever had before <laughs> because you know, <laughs> so this is the problem. And then that's another issue. When you actually when you actually try to point it out, you can actually end up strengthening them because mm. a lot of them people aren't going to care, you know. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. Mm-hmm. But And, like, yeah. you know, I'm talking about my experience because I can't, like, as in I'm comfortable talking about my experience, but, I'm certainly not alone in this kind of thing happening. Um, and it's quite um, sobering that it can happen in the context of it appearing in a book like that. And they've completely just refused to back down and, like, they're still, yeah, they're still using my term in a way that I didn't s- intend for it to be used. And so, but, I, I, you know, it kind of gets like what they're not going to admit. And so I just kind of have to accept and stop driving traffic to them, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering, 
also this just like reflecting on censure book has come out because towards the end of it, you talk about that there's going to have to be some like big seismic kind of event oh, yeah. for white women to have a recognition <laughs> that will kind of change the way that we react. And at the time I read that, I realized, I think your book came out or you finished it right before COVID. Yeah. So, right? well, it came out in Australia. I don't think COVID had in Australia, hit yet. No, it came out in Australia in late 2019. So just before COVID hit came out in the US in August 2020. So it had, it was finished. I'd finished yeah. it in January of 2020, but yeah. I did, I did allude to COVID in, or I may have even mm-hmm. mentioned it, but in the, in the um, conclusion, I didn't, uh-huh. I didn't discuss it at length because um, it wasn't the world in which I'd written it uh-huh. and it would have actually required too much rewriting to pretend that I yeah. was also, you know, so I couldn't pretend that yeah. something was happening in the world that wasn't at the time I was writing it, but I could, I mm-hmm. could discuss it briefly in the conclusion. Yeah. I thought about that, like seeing how many of the themes that you talked about and the structural issues that were brought up then were just replicated in the way that the entire world handled or did not handle COVID at all. And I think that I at least at one point had some hope that that would be the thing that shook us enough to recognize all of these structural problems in our society. And that might be sort of an awakening. And now that we're on this other side of it, it, it doesn't seem to have done anything again. So I'm like, what do you, I mean, is there, I don't know what it would be. It what almost, kind of seismic event I don't know. Could take well, place just, if it's not the death of millions. Real, well, to add to this yeah. real quick too, because I that part really made me pause. There were so many parts, but one when you said like, it seems like there's a literal book white women are learning this from. Like that that has stuck yeah. with me so much. Like, yes, where did we learn this? How did we learn this? But then that the part about the seismic, Mindy, I love that you're asking about COVID because part of me wonders if it's if it's so seismic. I actually think it encourages people to want to retreat mm. so badly to what feels Sorry. normal again or what like they're blanky that the the blanky need is way stronger than yeah. normal. So I'm almost like, what's the perfect level of disruption that that people feel willing to let go of these things that are demonstrated to be so horrible? I don't I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. That's I not think, that I think like the answer to that. Like when I said that, <laughs> I know, uh, from memory, I was thinking in a in a like it, it has to be something that it doesn't just disrupt their life or affect their life or even endanger their life. It, it's something that mm. has to completely force you to recognize yourself, right? To recognize everything mm. that makes you who you are. Uh, and I think I likened it to like mm. the pathological narcissism because like narcissism is mm-hmm. notoriously <laughs> difficult to treat, right? Because narcissists, and I'm talking mm-hmm. about clinical narcissists, you're not just like that person is yeah. not, you know, it's like clinical disorder <laughs> as, a, as an actual, you know, disorder um, yeah. is so hard, difficult to treat because they can't look into themselves enough to really see their own trauma. They refuse to see it, yeah. and so it's all externalized, it's all projected. And then what that ends up happening is it hurts everyone around them, and they can recognize that they're hurting on a certain level, but it stays up here, and it's like, well, 
If they're not hurting, then I'll be hurting. So it's better that they're hurting. They can't conceive that there's a, there could be a relationship where neither of them has to mm. be hurting, right? No <laughs> one has to lose right. in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. They can't see that. Mm-hmm. And in a way, mm-hmm. I just thought that was a good metaphor for white, white you know. Exactly I right. think a lot of white people yeah. still kind of see, but if we're not on top, we'll be on bottom, right? Yeah. If we're not yeah. privileged, we'll be unprivileged, you know. So yeah, what is it that can make the majority of white people see or people that benefit from whiteness, it's not all just white people anymore, but people that benefit from whiteness, mm-hmm. what is it that can make them see, A, to really see that everything they have is predicated on depriving and mm-hmm. oppressing others mm-hmm. and to see that they could be a better person actually and gain more by acknowledging it and mm-hmm. you, they're just thinking of the things that they're going to lose and not the possibilities of what they can gain. And and so, yeah, that's what I was trying to get. It has to be a seismic event that mm-hmm. forces you to actually recognise that about yourself, about your country. And I, you know, I floated the possibility of climate change getting worse as, as that because, you know, I was talking about Indigenous, mm-hmm. like how land rights, Indigenous land rights and you know, climate change go hand in hand and that one of the best ways to, and I do reference mm-hmm. a study, which I can't remember, but this is reference, uh, that one of one of the key ways of tackling climate change is to actually restore land rights to Indigenous people and communities. Like, so, it's, again, it's that whole, this yeah. whole thing of we are yeah. one world and we just keep insisting we're not. And that is literally because it's disrupting everything, it's tearing us apart from each other and it's literally tearing the world, the planet apart. And then, I mean, COVID could have Mm -hmm. been another one because, well, you know, what I saw in COVID is, um, you know, like when the the vaccines came out and the, um, you know, the drive to get everyone in the West vaccinated and now you have to, you know, get double vaccinated then triple and get your boosters, but... There wasn't no effort in addressing the the fact that people in the developing, like the, the the global south, were not that weren't having access to vaccines, and uh, and even the WHO came out eventually and said it's it's starting to get irresponsible to to tell people in the industrial world to get like their fourth booster when there's people mm-hmm. in you know in African countries and other other global south countries that haven't because they don't have access to it because they're not allowed. You know, like the, the 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 pharmaceutical companies producing it weren't allowing them to use. You know, they weren't mm-hmm. sharing the technology. They weren't sharing the science with them. And so, not only is that fo- that that selfishness of that, but it's also the folly of thinking this. You saw how quickly this virus travelled around the world. Like, if the answer to that is, is we all get vaccinated, but only people in the rich countries are getting vaccinated. How, like, how are you, are you really actually willing to get like a hundred boosters? And because you're just gonna, if it's gonna keep mutating and you're gonna have to keep topping up, topping up because people elsewhere are not getting any, like, so it's like it, it just mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, you're hurting yourself. And also, you're hurting yourself because mm-hmm. how many vaccines, you know, ultimately do you want in your body? Like, is it really something you want to do every three yeah. months for the rest of your life? Um, because we're not actually mm-hmm. addressing this as a global issue. 
So that is a, right. so again, right. that could have been another opportunity to look at. Wow, we're talking about how if you're in the West and you don't get a vaccine, then you're selfish, right? Because you don't care about other people, you don't care about yourself, mm-hmm. because you're willing to risk your own life, but it's not only your life, it's everyone around you. But how can you not see that on a global level? Mm-hmm. That in 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 a way, mm-hmm. in a way, an argument could be made that if you're going to keep taking boosters, well, maybe you're selfish because you're not putting pressure on these pharmaceutical companies that are presenting themselves as these benevolent, oh, well, here we have your cure, but they're making billions of dollars out of it and they're depriving poorer countries from the, from, of the technology, right? So that is the kind of, again, what yeah. I'm talking about, personal, political, and, and, yeah. and, and also this idea that yeah. of a seismic event that could have forced us to see how much everything we have here hinges on taking it from elsewhere or depriving it from elsewhere. But again, we didn't. No, <laughs> no, we uh, didn't. And I can just see too, like I'm thinking of all the ways that like you can pull at other strings, like we talk about and keep unraveling that. I mean, you can look at like why people don't have adequate paid sick leave from jobs. And so they can't miss days if they're sick. So they go to work and then they spread it around to other yeah. people because they really don't have a choice because capitalism sucks. You know, it just like <laughs> it keeps going on all those levels. And then you can't get health care until you're really ill because you can't afford it. And then at that point you're in an ER and you're taking all of these resources that you didn't yes. need to, if you would have had access at the early <laughs> stages, you know, it's just all of this stuff that just is so interconnected and we just keep boiling it down to these, you know, little simple individual things, which can't no, only be the exactly. answer. And so the, the short sightedness yeah. of it, you know, it's so like, yeah. oh no, we're not going to give you affordable health insurance now because you're not even sick. But people are going to get sick. People are going to get hit by a car. People are, like things is going to happen, and then it's going to cost more. Right. Like you know, it, it's going to cost yeah. so much more down the road <laughs> than if we just sort of dealt as a. We're very much into, like with the West, we're very much into trying to find a cure rather than preventing something. Dealing with something after it happens mm-hmm. rather oh my than gosh. doing yes. it, than being able to yes. see it or see the possibility of it and acting right. early so that something like, you know, to mitigate it so that if it does happen, it's not the massive disaster that it, it is otherwise. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got my first postgraduate degree in public health before I went on to do physician assistant studies. And that's one of the first metaphors that I remember is talking about public health as, you know, instead of fishing people out of the river that have that are drowning downstream, you just go upstream and keep them from falling in. Mm. And that is so much more effective than (laughs) trying to do the massive rescue effort downstream. And I think that can be applied beyond medicine, obviously, Mm. to all of these kinds of social issues. I think what's so tricky, and I have this movie on my mind because I just, I have two little kids and we just watched it this weekend. It's Strange World. It's this movie that just came out from Disney. Mm. It it was a nice story. So the, the metaphor is that there's this plant that produces these berries that allow them to power their world and it's like revolutionize everything and it's so wonderful and then it starts to get sick and it's dying and so they're trying to figure out what's happening i feel like in order to understand the metaphor i'd have to spoil the movie and i feel kind of bad basically (laughs) the point is that when you go upstream and you're like why are all these people drowning and when you realize that the answer is connected to something that people in power downstream really enjoy good fucking Mm. luck Basically, because even mm-hmm. if those people profess to care about why people are drowning, 
you can start to rationalize like, well, it's just a few people drowning because I really like this hot chocolate I drink every day or whatever it is. Like Mm. it's usually something that's for our comfort and our convenience that would have to change. And that brings it around so well to white women. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Like it comes back so much because like we have so much comfort in this system that has been built around us. And of course your brick breaks down like beautifully how it's not true comfort. It's not real peace that we enjoy in this. And if we just could recognize that we could change it. But on the surface, we enjoy a lot. We have a lot of power because we have aligned ourselves with white supremacy and white men and the power that they mm-hmm. have instead of actually tackling all of the underneath of that. But that's the seismic change yeah. Ruby, that I hear you asking for is to see it not as it's not comfort. It's like a really sick yeah. meal that got that we make all yeah. the time. And so that that's the ability to see like, oh, this thing that I thought was innocuous or even maybe a tool is actually really dangerous. And mm. I can't, I, once you know that you can't ever use it again in that. Mm. Hopefully you wouldn't, you know, this is again mm-hmm. where there are definitely people who would just use it, you know, to keep amassing power. But I, I, I have to believe that those, that whether it's seismic on a social level or just like a personal level where people have that realization that, that yeah, I think, can matter you know yeah i think there are you know on an individual level i see it happening there are people that are are then able to acknowledge it i had i gave a talk recently in tasmania it was a conference and a woman an older white woman she's maybe in her 60s she came up to me afterwards and so uh, i talk based on my book um or themes relevant to the book Mm -hmm. and conference was for like a peak body for volunteer organizations so to give you a sense these are these are people doing good things right in in the world Mm -hmm. um (laughs) And so she said to me, you've really hit, like a, basically my talk hit her like a ton of bricks basically. And she said, I face, you're forcing me to look at myself as a woman in a way that I never have before. Um, and she's like, I, like just the other day, like I think I've had racist attitudes without realising it. And and like she said, mm-hmm. I just the other day I was in, I can't remember, she was in some kind of line or she was about to get into a line for something. And as she's approaching the line, she said there was a, a younger Asian couple waiting. And she just kind of didn't say the words, but, met, you know, when you think without words, you know, she's kind of thought, I'll just duck in ahead of them. I can go in ahead of them. I said, wow, okay. She's like, the thing is, beforehand, if I was going to rationalize it to myself or I would say, oh, it's because I'm older. As an older person, I should be afforded mm-hmm. to go ahead. Um but really, and she said it in such a way that there was almost like a wonder in her voice, like like she'd really saw something about herself she'd never seen before. You know, she was like, it's because they're Asian. It is. What does that say about me? I, I would tell myself it would be because they're, I'm older and I should go ahead, but I actually think I thought I had the right to go ahead of them because they're just Asian. Mm-hmm. See, that that is the kind of like, mm-hmm. um, that is, yeah, me. like that, sure, it's only yeah. happened to one person, but that is huge. And I said yeah. to her, like, mm-hmm. for you to admit it to yourself is huge. To admit it to another person, especially me, like the person who said, <laughs> said that, look, that's massive. <laughs> and this is a step towards, a, you know, like if we can have that kind of awakening on a bigger scale, mm-hmm. then that that yeah. that's the kind of ripple effect that we're on. But that is the degree that we need to, and that's a hard thing mm-hmm. to face, right? So we're gonna we're gonna look for excuses. Oh, 
it, no, it has to have been this. We don't want it. And that's why, again, that, that narcissism mm-hmm. analogy comes in mm-hmm. handy. Who wants to become self-aware yeah. and admit that they're a narcissist, right? Like, you know, it's a horrible, <laughs> it's a horrible thing. So, so for people with that clinical disorder, their entire life is structured around protecting that fragile core. And that core at, at the core of it, it's like a, it's a child that wasn't, that never had a chance, mm-hmm. right? So it developed all of these mm-hmm. strategies to protect itself, which served it well as a child. But as it grew older, no longer. So they're, they're depriving themselves of true human connection and they're creating unimaginable mm-hmm. suffering to all the people around them. Now, occasionally, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, someone with that disorder will become aware of it and work at challenging their own behaviours. And that is what whiteness has to do. It's not a, just a one-time thing. It's not waking up, I'm no longer racist. Mm-hmm. It's actually yeah, it's a yeah. constant mm-hmm. yeah. daily battle, really, because everything in the world, or in the world, in the society has made it so that it wants you to accept all that you, as I see as white people, is mm-hmm. to accept everything that's given mm-hmm. to you and not question it because it yeah. can serve you personally mm-hmm. even though it hurts you in other ways and especially if you're not a uh, yeah financial like economically privileged white person you might get the sense of you belong to the dominant powerful race but what's it really doing for you on a personal Mm -hmm. level not much you know um Mm -mm. and Mm -hmm. it wants you to stay in that because then it serves the people who gain the most from it well i I, you know think of i'm thinking this is like the end of the year and new year's is coming up and i've always been notoriously horrible about like goal setting or any sort of resolutions i'm always just like don't wait for a certain time of year or day to do it just get on it and do it why do we yeah. do this silly thing but it just since this just so happens to coincide i mean i think that's a great place for us to maybe start in this new year, like, and especially our listeners and the women um, and men who listen to this podcast to just really spend time on a regular basis over this new year and deconstruct some of those very personal, like, kind of archetypes that we've all bought into and look and see where those little daily actions, like, what am I really doing this for? Where does this come from? And trying to start breaking that down and maybe having those seismic events within ourselves on a regular basis, yeah. I think. And, yeah. Ruby, is there anything you're working on that you're looking forward to? Oh, I'm looking forward to um, anything my PhD that, soon. Yeah. It really is um, in just the final yeah, rewrite yeah. stages. It's been, you know, it got stopped and delayed a lot, because I, I, I wrote the, you know, I just wrote the book after I started the PhD. So I took time off. <laughs> and then COVID hit and then I got sick and not from, not from COVID, but I got mm. sick during COVID. Um, so it was just, it felt like a million years. <laughs> like it. So looking forward to that. Well, congratulations. I am writing that a book proposal that I can't talk much about now, but maybe mm. we can discuss well, that. forward to it. Yeah, so <laughs> this is finally, you know, I'm finally ready to write another another one. Um, yeah. How oh, exciting. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for taking your time. We're so excited about this and yeah, and we're really grateful for your book and we will do whatever we can to promote that and any future work that you have. Please let us know. We'd love to talk again and we'd love to promote your work more. Thank you so much. Been a great talk. Thank you. Well, we'll be in touch, Ruby. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.